0: of God's Word, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We read that far in God's word. What if I asked you to write a song of thanks? Uh, Right now we pretend we're in school and take out a piece of paper and a pen and I'll just be quiet for two minutes and you write a song of thanks. Are you in any good frame of mind to write a song of thanks tonight? Maybe your heart is broken. Maybe you're grieving a loss. Like You and I find it easier to thank God in good times when things seem to be going our way. We find it difficult to thank God or even pen a song of thanks when our dreams are crushed. Uh, We need help at times like this, giving thanks to God when life becomes hard. I'm not just asking you these things at the beginning of a message to stir up your emotions and cause you to think about the stresses you might be facing. It's actually the context for the psalm. From the title of the psalm, we get a timestamp, and so we actually know that this psalm was written in a time of crisis for David. Soon after David had to say goodbye to his best friend Jonathan, we also know that Jonathan's father, Saul, was trying to kill David. Double crisis, you could say. David was facing loneliness, no friend, no weapons, and not even any food. On this occasion, David went to see, you could call it his pastor, uh, the priest, you could call it his pastor, the chief priest, asking if there's any diaconal gift of food available. Pastor, the priest, chief priest, gives him a loaf of bread and also gave him a surprise. You remember what the surprise is? Pastor gave David a sword. And it wasn't just any sword, it was Goliath's old sword. So with that exact sword, David then went to the city of Gath, you know, the Philistine city of Gath, carrying the large sword of Goliath, his hometown. (laughs) There David was, we could say this understatedly, in danger for his life. In fact, the title of the psalm also tells us specifically that it was during this time that David was forced to, how politely they put it, change his behavior, (laughs) which means he had to fake being insane in order to get out of a dangerous moment. It was clever. It was incredible. It was genius. But subsequent to that event, next, David needed to go into hiding in a cave that we could describe as a dismal cave, where David still was when he wrote these words. David was a man in crisis and then some. David had nothing. And yet during the crisis, having nothing, David put his mind to writing a song of thanks to God. And this psalm is a tremendous gift to us. It gives us a secret to becoming thankful when we don't feel it. When we don't feel thankful. And brings us to our main point in our psalm, Psalm 34. Our good God gave us four steps to cope with a crisis. Number one, decide to praise God throughout the crisis. Do you ever wonder whether the crisis that you're facing will cause you to shipwreck your faith? Do you ever get concerned about that? That you'll give up on God and trusting in him? Verses 1 and 2, God encourages us to take a first step. The first step in facing a crisis per Psalm 34 is to make a commitment to keep right on praising God no matter what. For our walk with God from today to the day when we get to heaven and see Jesus face to face, all starts with this decision reflected in the very first words of the psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. It's a decision of the will. It's not an emotional decision. It's a decision coming from what I call the decision-making center of who we are, the will. Not just the mind, not just the heart. It's a determination that this is what I'm planning to do. I will bless the Lord at all times. That's a decision made at the beginning of a difficult season. And he goes on to unfold that. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Again, the personal commitment is there. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. It will continue to be the case for me. No matter how this crisis unfolds. David, when he writes these words, had previously slain Goliath. It was back in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, before this event. It was later, in 1 Samuel 21, that David had been clever enough to fake insanity, the occasion upon which we're now hearing Psalm 34, 1 Samuel chapter 21. But notice, David here does not give himself credit for his own cleverness and creativity. Just like he didn't give himself credit for his own skill with a sling or his own music. Though he put a lot of effort into it, it was God-given. David had decided to reserve his mouth for praising God and not using his mouth to speak praises of his own abilities. In verse 3, God next encourages us to go public with our new decision within our community, within our network of people. Our commitment to always praise God goes public. We let people know that this is our commitment. How do you do that? By calling on others to praise the Lord verse 3 oh, magnify the Lord with me let us exalt his name together this is, of course what David does as king what David does as worship leader but a miniature of that we can all do i have a commitment to praise god you say to your friends and i have a reason to praise god and so do you would you please continue to praise God with me and join with me in praise? And remember, this is all in the middle of a difficult time. It's in the middle of a crisis, a double crisis, if you will, for David. Is that how we approach difficulties? I'll stop to try to illustrate something that still is in my mind. It happened years ago. Our family has a Christian woman, a friend of our family. Her name is Diane. And Diane experienced a devastating fire on her family's hobby farm. When we telephoned her to talk about it, all she could say was basically this. The Lord has been so good. God sent people at every turn. Each time we would identify something that we needed, someone was already on their way bringing it to us. Do you see how remarkable that is? The things that she said about A fire on her hobby farm? Wouldn't most people use a devastating fire as the excuse to complain to caring friends who would completely understand that? But instead, Diane invited us not to see how bad her situation was. She invited us instead to see how good her God is. That's significant. That is the first step. If you can do that at the beginning of your crisis, you're walking the path God laid for us here in Psalm 34. Somewhere along the way, before the fire happened, our Christian friend Diane had made a decision to praise God no matter what. And then when the fire happened, she just followed through on the commitment to praise God in this new day. Step two. Now verses four to seven, we've moved to step two. Learn about God early in the crisis. Verse four, in a crisis, we learn from God about himself. I sought the Lord... And he answered me. Lord's answer may come in the form of relief. Problem resolved. It's over. Or God's answer may come in the form of no relief, but the gift of endurance, the gift of his presence. Look carefully at verse 4. It does not say God delivered me from all my problems. Instead, it says... God delivered me from all my fears. That is a significant difference to notice. Sometimes that's the Lord's answer for us. We have to learn early, soon in the crisis, that we're called to keep on praising a God who can remove our problems and sometimes decides not to remove our problems. And we don't know which way God will decide in our case in this crisis. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul famously prayed, Lord, take away my thorn. And God's answer to Paul was, no, the thorn stays. And yet God had something for Paul alongside of that thorn. My grace is sufficient for you while you suffer with that thorn. Isn't that significant? It's not just thorn stays, go away. The thorn stays... My grace is sufficient for you. That's what verse 4 is saying. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. David's in the same soup, but no more fear. That's significant. Verses 5 to 7, he expands on this that God encourages us to learn something else about God, the difference the Lord makes as we enter a crisis. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. Wait, what? <laughs> those who look to him are hanging on? Those who look to him are, are managing somehow? Those who look to him are struggling? No, it says those who look to him are radiant. What is going on? In Exodus 34, Moses' face was radiant coming down from the mountain after meeting with God. And This same radiant face of Moses was um, referred to by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul wrote that the radiant face of Moses was a picture of something. What's the shining face of Moses a picture of? It's a picture of Christians who are growing more like the Lord. Understanding the radiant face of Moses is important because God gave us this picture through Moses in Exodus 34, through David here in Psalm 34, and through Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18. What is it about this radiant face thing that we need to understand? It's this. The radiant face is a picture of the transformation mindset of the Christian person. When we look at things differently, when we look at things the way we're supposed to look at things, it seems to God To look at us, to see the shining face of of radiancy like like the face of Moses. God can see our radiant attitude and others begin to notice it as well. It was visible to others when Moses came down. We're able to keep looking to the Lord no matter what happens, and we're able to remain radiant no matter what happens. That's the difference the Lord makes. It's not just you're going to make it through. White knuckles, bear down, put your seatbelt on, you're going to make it through. That's just bear survival. This is the Lord God caring for his people saying, you can remain radiant through it. That's the difference the Lord makes. There's a story here, a familiar one. I'm not going to apologize because it fits so well. 150 years ago uh, this month, it was November of 1873, a Chicago businessman sent his wife and three daughters to Europe by ship plan was for him to come and join them later. He had some business to take care of, and then he would join them in Europe. His family's ship went down while he was in Chicago, and his wife survived the shipwreck and wired him. This was the years where you, you wouldn't pick up a phone, but you'd send a wire message to her husband saying, all she could say is these short words, quote, all our daughters have been lost, only I have been saved, end quote. The man got on the very next vessel to join his wife in Europe in grief. His name, as you might know, is Horatio Spafford, a believer who had learned about God in good times and is suddenly learning more about God and his pain. And as his boat came near to the place where his daughters had been drowned, the skipper of the ship pointed out to Mr. Spafford that place where the previous ship went down. And it was right there, right then, On the deck of the ship that Mr. Spafford wrote down these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. Since that time, 150 years ago this month, our dear brother Mr. Spafford, through his writing and his faith, has been calling on us to praise God with him, with the song that he wrote. It's the difference the Lord makes in a crisis, says David. It's the difference the Lord makes in a crisis, says Horatio Spafford. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, says this psalm. Those who look to him are radiant, says God's word right here in our psalm. We move on to our third step. Teach others in the middle of the crisis, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, David called on us to taste and see that the Lord is good. We can go farther. In verse 8, we're called on to call on others to taste and see that the Lord is good. The tasting here is more than some tiny sampling, like the, the free sampling of the newest seaweed product they're rolling out in the grocery store. They always want us to, to try out as if we're going to buy that. But this is not just some little sampling. Sometimes I wish it was a different word. I don't want to mess with the translations, but taste is an ongoing process. Both Hebrews 6, 5 and 1 Peter 2.3 use this verse, Psalm 34, verse 8, to describe tasting that is faith as a lifestyle. So it's get into the habit of tasting, perhaps is the best way to try. It's not some little sampling. This is an invitation to place your whole life under God's care and only taste what He provides. That God's care and God's care alone, and see for yourself how you'll do on only the God provided things diet. It's an invitation that David extends to us. Taste, try it, come on this diet with us. And it's an invitation we can extend to others. We can teach others to come to this diet. How often I've been told as I visit a church member, a believer, in our church family, in the hospital, going through a crisis, how the doctors and nurses are blown away, just absolutely shocked at how rock solid this person's faith is in God when they're going through such difficulty. It's an invitation to others to taste and see our God is good. Verses 9 through 11, he fills this out. He expects us to offer how-to classes on how to trust the Lord during trials. Uh, verse 9: Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Verse 10, the illustration of lions. The the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. Class is starting. Listen, listen up. Listen to me. Gather, sit down. Listen to me, O children. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, how to trust the Lord when everything's falling apart. It's something we can teach, it's something that can be learned chancellor at the University of Glasgow at the start of a chapel service introduced the speaker. Now, the speaker is a missionary. You might remember his name, David Livingston. He stepped aside and motioned, Mr. Livingston, forward. Come forward to the podium. It's your turn to speak, sir. Would you please? And as he walked toward the podium to speak, the students began to see him. They, they noticed him, what he looked like. They saw his hair had changed color because it had been so beaten with tropical sun. The students saw a dedicated missionary's body still emaciated after a bout he had with jungle fever. The students observed his right arm hanging limp because it had been destroyed by an attack from an African lion. As the students took notice of this man as he walked towards the podium that he had endured many trials in the name of the Lord for missionary service, the students spontaneously, without any instruction from the chancellor, just stood up. Every student stood up, not to applaud, but in awe and respectful silence before God's missionary making his way to the podium. He hadn't spoken one word yet. And the students were already receiving the experienced missionary's lesson, loud and clear, how he lived his life, taught the students how to trust the Lord in their own Trials, come, O children, listen to me, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord, how to trust him in trials. It's as if David Livingston's scars, each received in the middle of a crisis, were illustrating to the students the words here of King David, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, listen to me, I will teach you how to trust him. Brings us to our fourth and last step, verses 10 all the way to 22. Hide from the crisis in the Lord, follow his way, and wait it out. When we're hurting, we're tempted to start grumbling. So we receive a timely word here in verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil. It might seem like it's out of place, but that's right what we need. Keep your tongue from evil. Grumbling is not just bad manners. It's not just bad form. It's not just what your mother told you not to do. Grumbling is, per this verse, per scripture, Evil speech. Grumbling is evil speech. Verse 13 goes further. Next, God instructs us to keep our lips from speaking deceit. We deceive ourselves with lies when we're stressed, when we're in crisis. Lies like this. It's always going to be like this. It's a lie. It stinks to be me. No one's ever suffered like me. It's a lie. There's nothing good about this day. There's nothing good about this situation. It's a lie. What's the truth instead? We echo the truth of another psalmist who wrote that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, 24. So verse 13 here, back to Psalm 34, verse 13, it's a command what not to do. Don't speak evil. Don't speak deceit to yourself or others. So what must we do instead? Verse 14, we must turn away from evil and do good. We must seek peace and pursue it. Not only not let our tongues say unhelpful words, but make our tongues say helpful words. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Would that include a crisis? Give thanks in a crisis, we could say. Give thanks in all circumstances, Paul wrote, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Christians give thanks in a crisis. Believers like David give thanks in a difficult moment. Not just giving thanks with our mouths. Our hearts need to support the words. We need to hide in the Lord during the hardship. Our hearts and our mouths are connected. Whatever our mouths say reveals the status of our how our hearts so if we're saying evil grumbling words what's going on in our hearts is evil grumbling thoughts we turn our hearts to god how like david here in verse 15 and again in verse 17 cry out to god lord my heart is grumbling again my heart is evil what about when the troubles have broken our hearts God reminds us about his nearness during the troubles that breaks our hearts. Verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Our suffering may be extreme. Our God sees us. Our God hears us. Verse 15, We're reminded that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. It's like he's leaning in to catch the words we're crying out to him in prayer. God doesn't take our suffering lightly. It's never dismissed. God never loses control of our situation. Everything about our predicament is designed to reveal his closeness. He's right there to convince us of his nearness. While we're waiting for God's eventual deliverance of us from this scenario, we always have him nearby waiting with us until that last day of our suffering. Verse 18 does not say, if you look at it carefully, God will draw near as soon as he can get there. It doesn't say God will respond in short order. It doesn't say he's busy with something, you're number three in the list, please wait patiently. No, please be comforted, because what verse 18 says is he is near. He's already there. He was near to us before we thought to pray for his nearness. The only remaining thing needed was for God to reveal to us that he's near, for us to figure out that he's near. We consider ourselves informed. We consider ourselves reminded he's with us. He's near us, close by. Verse 20, the protection of his bones picks up a Passover instruction. Exodus 12, uh, 46 has that its true fulfillment in the crucifixion of Christ? The idea was not to break the bones. And sure enough, the bones of, of Jesus were not broken. We read in John nineteen thirty-two: the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. Verse thirty-six, John nineteen thirty-six: these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Three days later, Jesus rose again. It was through this crucifixion, it was through this resurrection that God protected us. He granted us resurrection in Christ. We were raised when he was raised. And all this confirmation of God's nearness to us in our crisis, the nearness of God leads ultimately to our rescue from the situation. One day, we'll all be in heaven in bliss and glory, right? So one day, we'll be removed from our difficulty But long before our rescue from the situation, we're rescued from our heartache. We're rescued from our misery. We're rescued from our sin. We're rescued from the condemnation that leads to death. That's the subtle difference that must be caught. The Lord Jesus explained this psalm concept in Luke 21, 16. Listen, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Then go to verse 18, Luke 21, 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. What? <laughs> You'll be delivered over by friends and family members. Some you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. What is Jesus saying? These verses point beyond death. Jesus went on to write in Luke 21:19, by your endurance you will gain your lives. You see what it's saying? In Luke 21 and in Psalm 34, we get the same message. Crucified, yet no bones broken. What is the big deal with no bones broken? He's dead. Resurrection's coming. And it's the fulfillment of promises with no bones broken. He was crucified unto death in order to save us, but his bones were preserved and his life was returned to him. You, as disciples, followers of Jesus, he says in Luke 21, you may be put to death, yet not a hair lost. It's pointing ahead to resurrection. You might be put to death, but it's not the end of you. I'll raise you again from the dead, and all the while, I won't let them touch your hairs. It's a pointer to the resurrection. It's a pointer to God's victory. This crisis might have you down, but it's not the end of you. The death was necessary, but... It's being closely managed by the Most High God. Your crisis is necessary per the sovereign will of God, but it's being closely managed by the Most High God. So here in Psalm 34, in verses 21 and 22, the the Lord at the end of our psalm presents the end of all things in two ways. There's two outcomes at the end, you realize. Verse 21 has one outcome. Verse 22 has the other outcome. The first outcome, verse 21, is the justice of God in coming judgment. Listen to it. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. It's the judgment of God. It's a picture of condemnation and coming perdition. That's one outcome of the end of the psalm, and the end of the world, the justice of God. Thank God there's another. The last verse, verse 22, talks about the mercy of God and the coming salvation. Listen to that. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Ah, that's our lot. That's our future. That's where this is all heading. God wants us to set the two truths side by side. That's why 21 and 22 are together at the end of the psalm. Keep them together, side by side. God's judgment and God's mercy. Judgment, mercy. Broken heart, thankful heart crisis, God is with us. They're together. It's a package deal. But the cost of this, the cost of the second part, the cost of the mercy, the cost of the thankful heart, the cost of the presence of God was not imagined by David as he wrote the words of verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. How could David have known the truest fulfillment of those words and what it would entail? How would the Lord redeem? Precisely how, David? How, at what price, in what manner, would God redeem the life of his servants? Only later, in the pages of the precious New Testament, do we receive the answer that the Lord would redeem the life of his servants through the death of the suffering servant, the death of the one, the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, the son of David, And the redemption of the Lord offered here in verse 22 came only by way of the cross. Only by way of the empty tomb. The scope of the last line of the psalm is unbounded. It's unrestrained. It's unstoppable. Listen again. Verse 22b says, None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There is no limit to that. There is no end to the blessing of the statement of God here. Why not? Why will there be no condemnation for those who take refuge in him? Because Christ was condemned in our place and rose again so that there's no condemnation left on our account before the living God. He took all of it. What have we seen in Psalm 34? Our good God gave us four steps to cope with the crisis. Number one, decide to praise God throughout it. Number two, learn about God early in the crisis. Number three, teach others in the middle of the crisis. Number four, hide from the crisis in the Lord, follow His way, and wait it out. So, in my conclusion, I have two simple applications. Number one, taste and see that the Lord is good. I know you came in here believing that the Lord is good. We sing it in our hymns and We all confirm that the Lord is good, but what the psalm is asking us to do is go beyond believing cognitively and doctrinally and confessionally and with hymnology that God is good and taste it. Tasting truth. You know what the fundamental difference is between a Christian and a non-Christian The difference is not that Christians know that God exists and non-Christians are not sure. That's just not true. Everybody knows that God exists. Some try to suppress it. They don't do a very good job. That's not the difference. The fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian has tasted that the Lord is good and lives out of that truth that God is good and gives thanks to him. Give it a try. Let your diet be what God provides. Taste and see the Lord is good. Second and last application, remember whenever your heart is broken that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Maybe that's a refrigerator verse, verse 18. Maybe that's a mirror verse with lipstick, verse 18 of Psalm 34. God delights to draw near to people whose hopes have been crushed. He draws near because of one thing, Jesus took our sins on his shoulders and he became the broken hearted person. He came to meet us where we are in this mess and he pulls us out of it. And Christ died to remove our misery and sin and he rose again to keep us near him forever. So remember whenever your heart is broken, the Lord is near to the broken hearted. Let's pray. Father, draw near to us. Give us...